Hello, I'm John Cameron, and welcome to Musicology. I like songs that touch the heart and that stay with a person for a lifetime. And that's what's important to me and to the people. And that's what I'm here for. And I get things done the way I want them to be done. Are you willful? In what way? I mean, are you, you have your own ideas of what you want to do and you, you're oh, going to yeah. do them? Oh, yeah. I deal through feeling. And then you want to act on it. Yeah. Any artist with an interesting story has a turning point in their career. For some, it might be a breakout album, or a single hit, or a music video. For those whose discography has been predominantly decided by A&R, typically that turning point is gaining control, becoming the lyricist or producer, being the driver rather than someone in the passenger seat. This is what the Jacksons yearned for. The Jackson 5 would become the Jacksons in 1976 by signing to CBS Records after five years at Motown. This would see the brothers receive a significantly higher royalty rate, as well as the opportunity to begin writing and composing their own music. As early as 1975, Michael Jackson started penning songs intended for his own independent solo effort. With he and his brothers now finally granted more creative control over the Jacksons' albums, it was the perfect time to take control of his own solo discography, which was also previously manufactured by Motown. Although he most likely had enough material for an album by 1978, there were still stepping stones Michael needed to tread on in order to attain a successful debut as an adult artist. Yes, it's, it's all about growing, I mean, that's why we want to name Motown. You want to try different things, you want to grow, it's like the, the, the caterpillar must come out of the cocoon and be a butterfly. Mm -hmm. We have to try different things and grow and become all those different colors and elements and things like that. In 1977, Michael Jackson was casted to play the Scarecrow in the Motown-produced film adaption of the Broadway show The Wiz, based on The Wizard of Oz. I mean, I think most kids fall in love with the Scarecrow. I, was, I always was mad at the lion. Well, he came out and, and made Dorothy mad like that and start made her run and I would always get mad. So, I mean, I fell in love with the Scarecrow and I never thought I would play the part. The film soundtrack would be produced by Quincy Jones, who was known for his diverse movie scores and quality jazz arrangements for many of the greats in that genre. Michael would feature on several songs in the movie, as well as his own solo in the film titled You Can't Win. You can't win. Michael came over to my house. I'd met him when he was 12 at Sammy's house, but he's, I guess he's 19 to 20 now. First thing's out of his mouth, did you help me find a producer for my solo album? We're going to Epic Records, so you could help him with my solo record. Like Vegas, the son right now, you don't even have a song in the picture, man. You 
even have a solo song, you know. We've got You Can't Win. You can The track would later be re-recorded for an individual release in 1978, as singles from the soundtrack were still being rolled out. moderate success, sandwiched between the releases Ease On Down The Road and Brand New Day, both of which were hits and featured Michael. The second part of You Can't Win would be again released in 1982 as a B-side to The Girl Is Mine single. time, very short portions were re-recorded, simply replacing the word gain with rain. Despite the film being a critical failure, Jackson's involvement in The Wills proved to be an auspicious endeavour, as one of the most significant partnerships in pop music would be formed. I say Quincy and I'm doing my album soon, I would like, you know, somebody producer. Do you know of any producers? Honestly, I wasn't in a slick way trying to say, Quincy, do my album or such and such. I didn't even think about him doing it. And he said, Smelly, uh, well, he calls me Smelly. He said, Smelly, why don't you let me do it? I said, that would be wonderful. And I started to see the maturity in him that I respected him a lot in the Motown records, you know. Uh, and I started to see some other things there. You know, and I guess that's part of, you know, one gift that you hope you have is to be able to see something before it happens, you know, and then work backwards in the details and see how to figure out how to get there. Before moving ahead with his solo project, Michael would need to complete the Jackson's Destiny album, which would be released in December 1978, with seven of the eight songs written and produced by the Band of Brothers themselves. This was a significant markup from their previous two albums, where they were only able to contribute two songs for each and their years at Motown, where any notion of them contributing were ignored, ultimately prompting their departure from the label. The new album, you're kind of pleased with, I would imagine, because you've actually produced and, and wrote all the songs on the album. There's one song that um, you didn't uh, have a 100% hand in, in, in recording, but most of the album you had, this was the first yes. time for you, wasn't it? Right. Why, why this album and, and not before? What? Because uh, it's kind of difficult to get people to believe in you, to, you know... You have to tell them, I could, you know, I want to do it for once. And, and some people believe in you, some don't. And finally they give you the chance. And they see what you can do, and then they let you do it. Initially demoed as Shake a Body in August 1978, Shake Your Body was Exhibit A in displaying the Jackson's writing and compositional abilities were more than capable of harboring a hit. Tell me about, where were you when you first heard about that record? How did it happen? Uh, it was at home, and Randy was playing this groove on the piano. Mm -hmm. da, da, da. I said, what is that? He said, oh, it's nothing. I said, don't say that, it is something. And I just started singing to his plan, mm -hmm. and it came about. 
To realize the track's production, the brothers called in keyboardist Greg Fillingaines. When I first heard the demo for Shake Your Body, uh, it was obviously the melody was there, um, and which was very strong. And they had the basic piano part, you know, that, that you hear the dun, 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 all that rhythm was there. But it, there wasn't as much going on rhythmically. Greg would re-record Randy's keyboard part, as well as contribute to much of the arrangement. They didn't have a groove to it. They just had which was great. And I thought, let's see, how could we really make this hot? You know. And uh, after having just worked with Stevie, I mean, he was obviously my main inspiration for, you know, for life. And uh, but the inspiration for that song in particular, I thought, well, what would Stevie do? The drummer that played on the track is a brilliant guy named Ed Green, but he couldn't do it. <laughs> he couldn't do the whole thing, right? We had to do it in three separate passes. So it was based off of Stevie's unorthodox style of drumming that I came up with that pattern. And then, you know, of course, the synth bass. You know, I'm all over that. So uh, that was totally inspired by Stevie as well. You notice on the, on the uh, piano track, it's, it's got like a chorus effect on it. Well, it's not an effect. What, what I did was I played one pass down completely and then recorded another pass playing the same piano but sped the tape up a little bit. So when he slowed it back down, it, had, it, 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 it created that chorus almost like a um, honky-tonk piano uh, effect. That's how that track developed. And, and, and of course, the guys thought I was crazy when I came up with that beat. You know, like, what the hell is this? But then when they heard it back, all together, they go, oh, this is really cool. So. Shake Your Body would peak at number three on various charts around the world and maintain a place for an extended period. The single version would be remixed by John Luongo, who added extra percussion and keyboards to amp up the disco feel. This remix would have a great influence on Michael's eventual solo album, with Quincy Jones remarking to Luongo on how the percussion on the remix would influence that of the songs. Did you approach your solo record any differently than you would about the Jacksons record? Yes, I do, really, because I don't, I don't think they should sound alike. When people buy a Jacksons album, I think they should buy a group album. When they buy my album, I think it should have a different solo-ish type sound to it, a different type of sound completely. 
when they come to the concert, I think they should hear like it's two different acts. When they come to the concert, they should have the attitude like they're going to see the Jacksons and a Michael Jackson concert because of my solo songs. Although Michael would have to embark on a 129-date year-long tour with his brothers, he would begin production on what would become the Off The Wall album. He didn't use any of the songs that he had worked on in the years prior. Instead, he began making demos to present to Quincy in late 1978. Not being an instrumentalist, he would have to rely on those around him to see his vision through. Stop Till You Get Enough would be the first. It would be the first Jackson penned track to be recorded. It would be the first song on the penultimate configuration of the impending album. It would be released as that album's first single. And it would be Michael Jackson's first number one song as an adult artist across a multiplicity of charts. All that beginning with this demo. mumbling an overly distorted vocal melody clearly defines this song as a demo for even the most pedestrian music consumer, all of the fundamental aspects of what would make this an appealing song is right here, minus a few flourishes, featuring a young Janet and Randy Jackson assisting on instruments, but most significantly the percussion. Yeah, there were uh, Avion Coke bottles. When they went to record that song in the studio, they couldn't recreate that same groove. Even though demos aren't perfect, they often have a feel that you just can't recreate. Randy and I did the demo for that, but Randy wrote that track. And they went in and tried to record this track with all these brilliant musicians, but it didn't quite have the right funk. They called Randy up at home and said, listen, it doesn't feel the same way the demo does. Can you come in and replay all this stuff? He said, yeah, I'll be down. So that was really my brother. After presenting the demo to Quincy, the initial tracking of the studio recording would reflect almost exactly what was represented on the demo. Drums by J.R. Robinson. Bass by Lewis Johnson. Engineer Bruce Wadian would mix these down to a stereo track, referred to by Quincy Jones as Polaroids. Percussion shared by Polino da Costa, Randy Jackson and Richard Heath. And Greg Fillingaines on electric piano and two clavinet tracks. These personnel would be responsible for executing the majority of the productions that were to come. After the team had collectively recorded handclaps to further emphasise the percussive vibrance of the song, Michael recorded his first vocal take. Mm-hmm. 
Then a second one would be added, creating a multi-layered vocal. Background vocals would also follow, along with speaking fragments throughout. With the vocals completed, more instrumentation would be overdubbed, like David Williams on guitar, accentuating the funk alongside the clavinet tracks. Greg Fillin Games would then add some more synthesizer to complement the piano. A distinctive feature not showcased in the demo would be the instrumental bridge. Before the studio recording took place, Greg visited Michael's home to work on some ideas for the song. This is what eventuated. So I said, well, what do you think? He goes, I like it. So can I get a piece? And he said, yeah. What do you think? And he goes, what do you think? So I'm trying to figure out, okay, now what? So I start off with, let's see, 50%? No, 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 that's, that won't work. Uh, 40? Nah, let's see. I'm talking myself down. This is all going on in a matter of seconds. So I'm thinking, okay, 30, 25? Well, maybe, I don't know. Uh, 20? Eh, 15? Well, so I go, well, what, what do you think about uh, 10%? He goes, okay. I'm like, this is great. I just wrote a song with Michael Jackson. This you know, uh, some time passes, and I get something in the mail, and it's a contract. And then I, f- I scroll down, and I see 10%. More time passes, and uh, then you know, I'm at home one day, and I get a call from one of his managers at that time. And he said, uh, yeah, you know that contract? I said, yeah, listen, I'm just about to send it back. No worries. Thank you so much. This is fantastic. He says, well, not so fast. I said, why? He said, well, because Michael's been thinking about it, and he's, he's come to the conclusion that what you did was an arrangement. So don't bother sending that back. Thanks for your service. Now, I, I could have been, been one of those guys to go, oh, hell no. And I could have, you know, gotten a lawyer and I could have gone at him, but I didn't. I was deeply heartbroken and uh, I, I, I let it go. While there's clearly a discrepancy over the amount of credit between Jackson and Phil and Gaines, it's undeniable that the bridge excels the song, especially once Jerry Hay and Seawind overdubbed their horns. <laughs> At this point, the song was nearing completion, but Quincy decided that adding strings would elevate it further. So towards the end of the album sessions, he enlisted Ben Wright, giving him 30 days to come up with an arrangement. 
Michael Jackson's background vocals are renowned for quality stacking, it was still felt that an additional party vibe could be present. Augie Johnson, Jim Gilstrap, Mortonette Jenkins, Paulette McWilliams, and Zedrick Williams would be called in to collectively record additional layers to the vocals. Going forward, we'll refer to this ensemble as the party people. still felt there was something missing, and the final overdub to the song would take place on the 28th of April 1979, just before test pressings for the single would be made. That overdub was some toms. Don't Stop Till You Get Enough would be released in various edited forms over the years, with the longest version being that on the album running at 6 minutes and 6 seconds. The session itself though tracks for 7 minutes and 42 seconds. on the off-the-wall album, 79. Did Greg Phil and Gaines do something on that song? Yes, the bridge. He no. created that. Okay. Was he given credit for that, for that, that song? Yes, he was. What was that, co-arranging or arranging or co-written? Arranging, just arranging. While Quincy Jones already had a vast discography as a composer, arranger, and producer, he was still fairly new to producing music outside of jazz, blues, and classical. Michael came back all teary-eyed one day and said, uh, the people at Epic don't want to use you. They said, you're too jazzy, you know, you don't understand this kind of music. Thank God he went back and they fought and they said, he's doing it. The Wiz was the first significant exception, but he was also producing albums for the duo The Brothers Johnson, which Lewis Johnson was one half of. Two out of the three projects he produced for them stepped out of the jazz genre and resembled more of the funk, soul, and disco mashup, sounding closer to what would become the Off The Wall album. I don't know if everybody knows this, but you're also a composer. One of my favorites was Michael Jackson's uh, Get On The Floor And Dance. Originally that song was created by the bass. I just had that groove. After a recording session, Johnson was sitting in his car playing a compilation tape of ideas that he was working on at the time. When Michael walked out of the studio to say goodbye, he heard one of the grooves from the car stereo and asked if he could write a song around it. Mm -hmm. 
The initial tracking of Get On The Floor would simply be drums, bass and clavinet. Jackson would record a very rough vocal, so rough that when isolated, you can hear the instrumental in the background. Then why don't you just dance across the floor? Cause there's a chance for chances and a chance for choosing And I sure would like just to group with you So get on the floor, on the floor and dance with me This could suggest either he recorded his scratch vocal live with the band or possibly later in the control room. In either case, an otherwise unconventional recording. With the instrumental still far from complete, he would record another scratch vocal, this time in a recording booth along with some hand claps. In this performance, he's also constructing parts of what would become the background vocals, most of which would be recorded next. background vocals now structured, the final lead vocal is tracked, all still to just the bass, drums and clavinet. At this point, the instrumental would expand exponentially. Additional rhythms were added with more hand claps, congas and three guitars, which would drive it further into a funk direction. As with Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, horns, strings, toms and outsourced background vocals would give it the late 70s disco vibe. With those extra overdubs, engineer Bruce Wadian would masterfully put together a mix for the album, although it wouldn't be the final. In early 1980, after Off The Wall had already been released, Michael wanted to add more, so he had David Williams record an additional fourth guitar and himself record more ad-libs in the fade-out, for which he did three takes. Get On The Floor was a track that the Brothers Johnson had been doing for an album we were doing on a m and they hadn't done any melody to it, so Michael heard that and liked it. So the Brothers Johnson write great stuff that the two guys collaborate. So that, that, that happened with that. While Get On The Floor wouldn't be released as a single, only as a B-side, 
Michael was extremely proud of it, despite the later additions. The original 1979 mix runs for 4 minutes and 44 seconds. The 1980 remix, while containing more content, runs for 5 seconds less. The full recording session for what would be used to mix and edit all of these versions tracks for 7 and a half minutes. It would be cut down significantly, even to the extent of omitting a third verse. Well, the songs that I wrote, I did myself. I did the music, I wrote the music, wrote the lyrics, the melody and everything. But Quincy and I produced it together. And that's what I love about working with Quincy. He's not a selfish person at all. And he's unlimited musically. He can, God, you want anything, he can do it. Jazz, folk, pop, classical, soul, gospel, anything. Renaissance music, anything. Circus music, he's just, especially because of his knowledge and experience with movies, soundtracks. And my album has some of those things in it. And uh, it was just wonderful working with him. Working day and night, take one. The final track Michael presented to Quincy would be another from those early home demo sessions, titled Working Day and Night. <laughs> Perhaps not as impressive as a demo, but all the potential that Don't Stop Till You Get Enough showed is there. Strong vocal melody, excellent percussion, and enough funk for where the album would head in. expecting more. I believe in doing better work. As you grow, you should get better. You know, it's like that saying, I'm not getting older, I'm getting better. It's a challenge. It's fun. I have a lot of fun doing it. To get paid for something you love to do is really a treat. A lot of people are employed and they hate their work. It's terrible. But I, I'm getting paid to do something that I love to do. So it's a lot of fun. I'm just having a ball.
is indicative of Jackson's James Brown influence, as it seems every instrument is attacked like percussion, including his vocals. Although for most of the album, the instruments that could be performed with real instruments were. The main bass part on Workin' Day and Night is actually a synth, that is until Lewis Johnson slaps his bass on the instrumental bridge. The song is a percussive gem with many facets. Michael's breathing, heavily inspired by Stevie Wonder's vocal tics from his early 70s albums. But the real showcase here is Jerry Hay and the Sea Wind Horns. And with that, Michael's contributions for the album were complete. What appeared on the album would be edited to 5 minutes 13 seconds, while the whole session actually ran for about a minute longer. vocals uh, pretty quick uh, sometimes you do have to get into the song and have the right mood but for instance Ben I did in one take I went right in and, and cut it and and I said want to do another one and the guy said no no it was great I said was it the role of Quincy Jones as a producer aside from composition contributions was to bring together this amazing collection of musicians and potential songs for inclusion She's out of my life. I've been carrying it around for about three years. You could feel the pain in it, you know. And I, I held on to it. And finally, I, something said, this is the right moment to give it to Michael. And when we recorded it with Michael, I knew it was an experience. He'd never even thought about ever singing the song, you know, because it's a very mature emotion. He cried at the end of every, every take, you know. We recorded about, I don't know, eight to 11 takes. And every one at the end, he's crying, you know. I said, hey... <laughs> That's supposed to be. Leave it on there and you know, leave it there because I didn't know how he was relating to it. He'd never had that kind of a mature relationship with anybody, I don't think, you know. She's Out of My Life is the ballad of the album. It was an opportunity for Michael to display his vocal ability, versatility, and vulnerability as a singer. Despite Tom Baylor composing the song on piano, Michael's recording would initially be demoed with just an acoustic guitar. She's out of my Like a night, she's out of my. 
Days Out of My Life was written by Tom Baylor, who I've known for years and years, and he's an old friend. I wrote She's Out of My Life as a result of being very much in love with a wonderful young woman. Do you ever get so upset that you're speaking to yourself out loud? Well, I was. I was in the car on the Pasadena freeway, and I'm saying, man, she was there for you. She loved you. She wanted to marry you. You're the one who said no. Face it. She's out of your life. One, two, one, two, three. And it's Q, and he says, hey, man, you've been writing. And I played the song, and it ring, it's ringing out, and he said, play it again. And I said, OK, Q, then who do you want to do it with? He said, Nad, if you'll trust me, I promise you an unforgettable recording of this song. And we sat on it for almost two years. I just could feel inside that he had the capacity to deal with that kind of emotion before. But I think he's mature enough now to deal with that. And a very painful song, and it was interesting because every take, the last eight bars, Michael broke down and cried. We left it on the record. We couldn't get a take without it. I said, now, Michael hasn't been married three or four times, you know, so I know he can't, he's not relating to a past experience like that, because this is a very, it was a very mature emotion in the song, but he related to it because he's so sensitive and aware, and he, and I mean, literally, the tears just fell out of his eyes, and he could just barely get his voice together to sing the last, the last word in there. But we just left it in the record. It's out of my head. album version, it would prominently feature Greg Fillingaines on a Rhodes keyboard and a few other guitar tracks by Larry Carlton, subdued in the reverberation of the keys and Michael's vocal. A string arrangement by Johnny Mandel fades in and out, pulling on the listener's heartstrings, strengthening the song's intensity. As noted by critics at the time, Michael's vocal is what stands out the most. not possession and I've learned that love won't wait now I've learned 
I love needs expression, but I learned too late, and she's out of my life. She's out of my life. Damned indecision and cursed pride. I kept my love for her locked deep inside, and it cuts like a knife. She's out of I'm sorry, I missed it. You did what? Prior to the release of Off the Wall, Jackson said in an interview, there's this beautiful song on it called She's Out of My Life. It's so pretty, I think it could be another Ben. I'm hoping it will come out as a single. It would end up being the fourth single released from the album to great success, and has remained a classic in the Michael Jackson catalogue ever since. I don't really play an instrument. I um, I play drums. You do play an instrument. Just a cheeky winky bit of piano. He plays enough to write hits. Yeah. See, but I, I think, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I have the, um, I think the mind is enough alone because really? I hear what I want. You can hear it. And you can I have a whole orchestra somebody. up here, a whole orchestra, and I hear it, right. and I um, interpret it to musicians, and they put it down. It's like Stevie. He he doesn't write music or read music, nor does Paul McCartney, and he still can't today. You just feel it, really. Jackson's first solo work that he was in control of had been on his mind for a few years now, and an obvious inevitability to any passive observer. This meant some of the more prolific songwriters at the time envisioned him as a potential vessel for their own creative work. I got the song Girlfriend, and Michael said, well, actually, Paul McCartney wrote it for me. <laughs> first met Paul McCartney, he came up to me, he said, how you doing? I said, fine. He said, you know, Linda and I wrote a song for you. I said, really? And he, and he started singing. He said, you want to hear a little bit? I said, okay. <laughs> and they started breaking out singing. Although Paul McCartney had offered the song to Jackson years prior, with its original recorded in 1974, the former Beatle would still record it for his 1978 album, London Town. Paul McCartney wasn't there for his songs, but, you know, he knew we were in the studio. He wrote that one especially for me, Girlfriend.
Production would start with Jackson delivering a rough guide vocal to bass, drums, and a Rhodes keyboard. From there, he would overdub parts of his background vocals, and Marlo Henderson would add guitar riffs, along with a new synth, accentuating the bells, which would become more prominent as production continued. vocal performance we hear on the album would be then laid down. Further guitars would be added by Larry Carlton and Wawa Watson, both of whom would contribute to other tracks along with George Duke adding synth flourishes. being barely a collaboration, Jackson and McCartney would go on to record three songs together in the coming years. Girlfriend would be released as a single, which in the UK would make Off The Wall the first album to have generated five single releases. Its success was moderate. No more than one edit of the track would be made, with the album version only running at three minutes and four seconds. The entire session, though, runs for almost a minute longer. songs that touch the heart and that stay with a person for a lifetime and that's what's important to me and to the people and that's what I'm here for and I get things done the way I want them to be done I deal through feeling it's the falling in love that's making me Girlfriend wouldn't be the only cover on the album. K. 
Carol Bayer Sager and David Foster wrote It's the Falling in Love for Sayer's two album in 1978. that were served sort of as demos for other people. So like one time I wrote a song with David Foster called It's the Falling in Love and Michael Jackson and Quincy heard it and they put it on the Off the Wall album, which was so much more than I had ever imagined it sounding. That's what a lot of my songs in my albums were. They were like demos for people who must have listened and went, I can do that better than her. <laughs> but you. And they did. version of It's the Falling in Love, the most significant change to the song would be duetting with Patty Austin. Michael's original scratch vocal includes the verse that would eventually be sung by Austin on the album. He loved me because I scare very easily. Yeah. Whenever I would be heading for the studio and he knew I was coming in the door, he'd always be behind a door a little bit further down the hall and he'd jump out literally and do, you know, like boo. And I would always jump and it, it just made his day. There's also a clavinet, a third guitar, and two Rhodes keyboards by Phil and Gaines and David Foster that were also cut or were rendered near inaudible. Compared to the multi-track, what appears on the album is rather stripped down. The string section is present throughout most of the song, however in its final version it only appears during the second verse.
Caught a duet for a new album in 1980 and write a handful of songs together over the next two decades. He would also record with David Foster years later. Ultimately, the recording would be reduced from its original five and a half minutes to just three minutes fifty. It's The Falling in Love would attain more significance when placed as a B-side on Jackson's Billie Jean single in 1983. say speaking of a hundred percent level I would give um, 50% to Motown coming up growing up with Motown and I give uh, a lot of that percentage to James Brown Jackie Wilson and all those different great entertainers and my time in the theater experiencing the theater we played the theater for so long it's the best experience in the world uh, just sitting on the wings and learning uh, I ate that up. And now, uh, I like all kind of music. I like all kind of people. I love the Beatles. I love folk music, uh, Earth, Wind & Fire. Stevie Wonder is my main favorite. Stevie Wonder is an artist's artist, especially throughout the 70s, where he had a run of five critically acclaimed albums, three of which would earn him Grammy Awards for Album of the Year. He was also exceptionally prolific, to the extent in which he had enough songs in his vault that he could give to other artists. Michael was an obvious candidate. Not only are they third cousins, but their professional history had crossed insurmountable times, with Stevie producing the Jackson 5 in 1974, resulting in a handful of songs that would go unreleased, and the group's vocals featuring on one of his albums. I Can't Help It was written during the sessions for Songs in the Key of Life. With Phil and Gaines having also played keyboards on that album, Quincy felt that he would be best suited to arrange the song. I can't help it. Well, uh, we heard the demo of it, and I thought that Quincy would want it basically the same way we heard it from Stevie. And it was a, you know, a really fast-paced. I can't help it if I wanted to. I wouldn't help it even if I could. I can't help it if I wanted to. I wouldn't help it. No, I can't help. 
to, I wouldn't help it Even if I could, I can't help it If I wanted to, I wouldn't help it, no So Quincy heard it and he thought, ah, no, I don't think so Maybe uh, let's kind of approach it different Let's kind of slow it down a bit My sister Renee had been hearing me play this cassette. She and Michael were friends, uh, and she took it over to let Michael hear it, and I think it was great that he did. Looking in my mirror Took me by surprise I can't help but see you Running often through my mind Like a baby Sensual disguise I can't help but love you It's getting better all the time I can't help it If I wanted to I wouldn't help it Even if I could I can't help it If I wanted to I wouldn't help it No Stevie Wonder, you know, God, I've learned so much from him by just sitting in on his sessions and talking to him and listening to him. I mean, he's phenomenal. I mean, I had an interview with George Harrison in England. We did it together. And um, he, we were speaking of Stevie, and he said, this exact words he said it. He said, Stevie Wonder makes him want to retire. That's exactly what he said. He said, he just can't even explain what Stevie does. He, um, he said, Paul feels the same way. He said, he's just incredible. I mean, I mean, I feel the same way about Stevie. You, I'll come in the door. And he'll say, Michael's here, Michael's here. And he'll come up with a song by saying that. I love Stevie. I learned so much from him. as a single, in recent times, I Can't Help It has been reassessed as a true highlight on an album of lush colours. Despite multiple re-releases of Off The Wall, the original five-minute version has never become commercially available. The official recording would be edited down by roughly 40 seconds from the original session.
I like all kind of music. I hate to say it's categories, pop, jazz, so I, I don't like that. I just, it's music. It's, it's wonder to the ear, and that's what counts. If you can move a person through music, and that's what makes me feel good, that, that's, that's what I enjoy about it. Even with all of the renowned musicians and writers that had contributed to the project thus far, Quincy would further pursue the talents of another hit maker across the pond. I took a chance with a composer that I had loved his work for a long time, and I could never figure out how he could be from Grimsby, England, living in Worms, Germany, and understand Ain't No Half-Steppin', you know, and all of those different terms that he was writing. It was just incredible talent. One night we were in the studio working and the phone call came through and I, I mean, I was really shocked, you know, because I mean, I, this is guy, I, I used to listen to his records on a Saturday afternoon in Cleethorpes with my mates, you know, around in the back bedroom. And I was really, you know, flattered. Rod Temperton had already penned numerous hits for the band Heatwave and would go on to create more for a host of other artists, many involved with this project. Well, I, I went back to the hotel in a real tizzy, you know, because I was working in the studio till about two in the morning. And then so I, when I got home, I had to then sit down and start to write something for Michael. And uh, and as there was no time to meet um, Michael or Quincy beforehand, I thought to myself, well, the best thing is to write, try to write at least three songs and then present them to him and say, well, you know, fellas, you can take which one you want. So I, I, I did that, and it was all kind of written in those hours, you know, between three in the morning and nine, because I was back in the studio with Heatwave at ten. And uh, so I went to L.A. that weekend, and uh, a car picked me up, took me straight to the studio, and Quincy grabbed hold of me and threw me in and said, this is Rod, fellas, uh, he'll show you what to do. And uh, we cut the three tracks in two afternoons, in a Saturday afternoon and Sunday afternoon. And uh, at the end of it, I walked in the studio in the control room and said to Quincy, well, there you go, uh, which one would you like? He said, what are you talking about? He said, oh, we'll take all three. Rod Temperton came in the studio and he came with this killer. This little white guy from Germany, Worms, Germany, comes with this this whole melody in the chorus. Rock with you. Wow. Initially with just bass, drums, guitars, and a keyboard, Temperton lays down the vocal melody for Rock With You. The song went through a few lyrical concepts, one of which was titled, I Wanna Eat You Up. The lyrics would later be appropriated to something more sensual. the wall was uh, took, it took so long because of we went to England and I was still doing the album came back did a little went on tour 
weekends on the tour, I would fly in and do a little and just so much. And while in, down south in Louisiana, Quincy called me, said, Michael, there's this guy, Rod Temperin, and I don't know if you've heard of him. He said, I'm, I'm sure you know his work. He said, you've heard of Heat Wave. I said, of course I've heard of Heat Wave, Boogie Nights and Always and Forever. He said, he wrote some songs for you and wait till you hear him. I said, okay, I can't wait. So he sent me some tracks and I flipped over them. And then Rod put his voice on. Rod hates his voice. He thinks it's terrible. And he was singing these songs, Rock With You. I said, God, these are great. So I recorded it and that's how it came about. And uh, they are great songs. Quincy told him to write a song about the rock, which was the dance. But he wanted to have a double meaning about rocking the girl and doing the dance, the rock. You know, a little nasty. <laughs> That's uh, that. And he came up with the song, which, which was wonderful. bridge of the song, layers of synthesizers are added with reverb, changing their anechoic personality to match the disco sonic affectations of the song. Finally, horns and strings would be added, with much of the later not being used. These, like Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, were also composed by Ben Wright. With You would be released as the second single and was a huge hit. Initially, the album mix would feature just one guitar, 
but the single mix and later pressings of the album would have the guitar re-recorded and double-tracked to emphasize the funk. The released version would clock at 3 minutes 40 seconds, although the full session recording lasts for almost a minute longer and features some incredible ad-libs by Michael. Worth a listen? Oh, yeah. Come on in, we'll see if it recorded. I could tell from Michael that he was very rhythmically driven. And so I tried to write melodies that were short notes and had a lot of short notes to give him some staccato rhythmic things he could do. Uh, I think the Off the Wall title song uh, gives you the best example. You know, that, that kind of melody rather than really long note, long line melodies. When the word is on your shoulder, gotta straighten up your act and book it down. If you can't act with the feeling, then there ain't no room for you in this part of town. The other thing I knew from his previous records is that he loved harmony work. And, you know, that's really the side of me that I would have brought from Heatwave because Heatwave was a very harmonically driven group. And um, so I kind of mixed the harmony segments uh, of the, the my music with this new idea of the, the shorter note melodies for Michael and came up with Off the Wall and, and Burn This Disco Out. Rob presented three songs for the project, he only expected one of them to be selected. Up to this point, the album's title was actually Girlfriend, until Temperton presented this. With the same basic tracking as the previous, what would become the album's title track, Off The Wall, was yet another funky instrumental, with vocal structures tailored to Michael's talents. The song is a perfect example of Michael Jackson's vocal excellence. For the primary set of background vocals, he layers four sets of two takes, totaling eight layers. Here's set one. Tonight, gotta leave the night to five up on the shelf. Set two. And just enjoy yourself. 
Light percussion and hand claps would be recorded after that session. The synthesizers by Phil and Gaines, Michael Bodica, and George Duke would be added, further accentuating the bass line and filling in the space with sound effects. over the weekends to cut the tracks uh, and I, at that point I still hadn't met Michael Michael didn't come to the studio then and the following week I came back again the following weekend uh, to do the vocals with Michael we did the back, all the backgrounds on all three tracks on the Saturday afternoon and then on the Sunday afternoon we did all the three lead vocal tracks and Michael was amazing because he stayed up the whole of that Saturday night to learn the lyrics uh, off so that he wouldn't have to read them on the, off the paper. In typical fashion for the album, strings, horns and what would become unused party people backing vocals would be the last to be added. be released as the third single, with different European and Japan exclusive mixes compared to the album version. All running for around four minutes, the full five and a half minute session contains additional vocals, horns, synth and string segments not used in any of those three mixes.
Well, I, I can't imagine, really. I um, I have no idea <laughs> what I'd be doing because this is seems so right for me, and I'm here to do this, and it's my contribution to life to do what I'm doing, and I put my heart in it, and whatever good I can do, I do it because I uh, I love people and I love making them happy. It's nothing like seeing your record number one, not for the ego, because I. I hate ego. It's for the fact that I know people bought it and they loved it and they enjoy it. And that's good. And I think all those people who, um, I mean, I can turn out great music, but it takes the people behind it who are the disc jockeys and the program directors and all the independent people One, to really two, make it happen. One, and I two, appreciate three. it. The final song proposed by Temperton would also close out the album. Burn This Disco Out further speaks to Rob's accommodations to Jackson's rhythmically driven vocals. celebrates the highlights of the disco era, even with the disco sucks motif having been initiated a month before the album's release, marking the steady decline of the genre over the next year. Burn This Disco Out would eventually be edited down to its album version, with the original studio session tracking 50 seconds longer and featuring unused party people vocals and siren sound effects towards the end. retrospectives on Jackson's early albums, so much of their success is attributed to Quincy Jones, and there's no doubt that he deserves a lot of credit, but so do the individuals in the team he put together. Greg Fillingaines is heard all over the session tapes, leading the band and making contributions barely accounted for in the credits. Bruce Woodian would create the final mixes, making decisions on what should be taken out or left in, as much a producer as anyone else in the team. Rob Temperton would critically step off of the plane and into the studio, seeing his songs through to the end, contributing big hits. Jerry Hay and Seawind's impeccable horn arrangements would elevate almost every track, and Michael would give the world a glimpse into his genius that was just beginning to flourish. What makes Off The Wall so special is that it sounds like every musician and singer present is having a good time. It's one big party. 
It's as intimate as it is carefully constructed. Everyone's personality shines through, even when Michael takes centre stage, marking a high standard and the perfect beginning for what would become an incomparable discography. Thank you for listening to John Cameron's Musicology. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating and reviewing on iTunes or sharing on social media.